You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the Freedom Pact. Today on the show, we are joined by Patrick Bet David. Patrick is the founder and CEO of PHP Insurance, which is the fastest growing financial services company in America. Patrick started off with literally nothing. His family had to flee a war-torn Iran as refugees to come to America when Patrick was just 10 years old. He now has a net worth of roughly $150 million. You may also know Patrick from his other venture, Valuetainment. Patrick's video, The Life of an Entrepreneur, has now been viewed more than 30 million times. He's interviewed mob bosses, Steve Wozniak, Kobe Bryant, Mark Cuban, Jordan Peterson, and across all platforms, Patrick has more than 7 million followers. In this episode today, we discuss Patrick's life growing up as a refugee, relationships, building a family, decision-making, which I'm telling you is a fantastic segment, and also we discuss how Patrick's visits to the graveyard launched him to unimaginable success. I hope you enjoy this conversation with the legendary entrepreneur, Patrick Bet David. Such a pleasure connecting, man. Welcome to the show. It's good to be on with you, man. So I listened to your episode on the Assyrian podcast and towards the end of the episode, the host asked you, he said, Patrick, if you were interviewing yourself, what would you want to know? And you said, well, if I want, if I was interviewing myself and you did a great interview with yourself about a week ago, by the way, you said that the one thing I'd want to know is what was on my mind when I was coming up. So when you think back to yourself, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, what was on your mind in terms of the fears, the excitement, the dreams, your father having a heart attack? What was on your mind? You know, it's amazing you say that. At 18, I was worried on whether going to the military was the right decision because at that time, it was the best time of my life. I was partying. I was having a good time. My friends were here. You know, we were together all the time in L.A. And then one day, um, I'm uh, working at Burger King. In the morning, I wake up. I had partied that night before till 4 o'clock in the morning. And I go outside, and my car is missing. 1983 Toyota Corolla is missing. So then I come back inside, and I had college that day. And I had work at Burger King. And I sat there and I said, Pat, what do you want to do? So I sat there and I called my dad. I said, Dad, I'm uh, going to the Army. I need you to drop me off to the recruiting station in Glendale. He came and picked me up, took me there, made the decision. I told the guy, if you can get me to get into the Army tomorrow, I'm in. He said, it's going to take three months. I said, I'm not signing up. Two weeks later, I was in the Army. The decision was made ASAP. 
So at 18, I was worried about my future, but also worried if I'm going to miss out on the fun part of life, not knowing that I'm going to party 10 times harder in the military than, than if I was back here. Because in the Army, you work your tail off, but you also have a lot of fun if you're around the right core group of people. So 18, I was worried about that decision. 21, when I was getting out of the military, I was 20 years old when I got out of the military. 20 years and nine months when I got out of the military. I didn't know if that was the right choice because I was pretty good in the military and I could have done that for 20 years. I would have had a great career and uh, it would have been a very predictable uh, system because I like predictability and element of predictability, which is formation. You wake up, you go to work, you know what's going to happen here. You're going to know what's going to happen there. There's some surprises, which is great, but uh, I enjoy the military. So I was afraid of getting out of the military because I went to my colonel, Colonel Peacocks, and I asked him for my, for my orders. He said, what do you want? I said, if you can get me uh, 18 Delta, Special Forces, because I spoke four or five languages. I said, if you can get me DLI, which is I'll go to DLI, it's a linguistic school to get some of my languages uh, stronger. I said, if you send me to Italy, Vicenza, they had a base over there in Vicenza, Italy. I said, I'll, I'm, I'm in. If you can do that, I'm in. They went and got me airborne. They got every single thing I wanted on my orders, plus a bonus. And the night before going in, I changed my mind. And I went and told, told Colonel Peacock, I got to get out of the military because of a phone call I got from a friend, Kogan Alaverian. So I got out of the military. On that flight back, leaving the Army, I tell you, I was very worried. I was concerned if I was making the right decision. So going back and asking about 18, 19, 20, 21, probably the biggest concern was, was I making the best decision at the time? And there was a very big level of uncertainty of not knowing if I was or if I wasn't. In the video you just released, the first question which you asked yourself was, was that, were you a good dancer, Patrick? Uh, it seems like you've had quite the eventful life in terms of partying. So I wonder, I'm not sure if you've ever been asked this, but are there any partying stories which you could share? Oh, I mean, it's a number of them. I mean, <laughs> I just tell you our routine. I'll, I'll tell you our routine. Let me see if that audio is coming from my end or your end. I'm just going to close that so we don't have anything here. Hang on one sure. second. Let me just check mine as well. All right. So I close my Chrome. So I should be good on my end and we're good to go. Okay. So partying stories. So, um, Here's what our routine looked like, all right? So Monday through Thursday, we worked very hard because we had our formation, everything going on. The moment Friday night came around, we would get ready. We had all these tequila bottles and we had a 45 minute drive up to Nashville, Tennessee, which was our favorite club. We had two good clubs. We liked one of them more than anything else. And we'd go there. So we would drink the entire way to Nashville, Tennessee. One person wouldn't drink, the driver, but we would drink the entire way down to Nashville, Tennessee. And then we'd get to the club and we would party and God knows what would happen. And we were at the one club where I was one of the main dancers. And, uh, you know, it's, it was unfair. It was absolutely unfair, the things we did in that nightclub. <laughs> and I tell you, I mean, this was the kind of nightclub which was uh, more like a Studio 54 type of a nightclub, not the typical nightclub you go to. There was a lot of stuff happening in this nightclub. And when you're in the moment of this nightclub, which I was for a year and a half, I was called the Greek God at this nightclub. Um, 
I was in the best shape of my life. I mean, I had the broad shoulders and the chest and the, my life was bodybuilding. I was treated royally. And there was a lot of uh, extracurricular activities that happened at this night. <laughs> that's why I'm glad social media doesn't exist at that time, because if it did, I'd have to explain to my kids, to my coworkers, to my investors for the rest of my life, what the hell I was doing at 18 to 20 years old. <laughs> I love that so much. I love that so much. Um, Going back to that period, what was the biggest doubt or insecurity that you had when you were coming up and how did you deal with it? Biggest doubt and insecurity I had at 18 to 20 years old. It's making the right decision. When it comes on to insecurities, what was insecurities? Insecurities I had, um, you know, I don't know what the insecurities I could have thought about. It's more fears is what I had, what I feared. I had a lot of fears. What if this happens? What if that happens? What if this happens? What if this doesn't go right? What if I can't make the right decision? So indecision was probably my biggest weakness at that time. But uh, one of the biggest decisions I made that helped me overcome indecision was joining the army and shocking the hell out of everybody, including myself. That kind of led me to knowing in a drop of a hat, I can make a tough decision and move on and I'll make the best of it. But uh, I had a lot of fears, a lot of endless nights of not uh, knowing what I was going to do next. I remember one time when I was in the army, I went a month without talking to anybody. One month. When I first got to my unit, I went a month without talking to anybody. They thought I was mute. You would literally talk to me. I would not answer back to you for one month. And uh, because I had a lot on my mind, my mom went back to Iran. My sister was alone in L.A., my dad was having heart attacks. So there was a lot of weight on me to try to make everything work. And I was trying to be God. This is one of my affirmations. This is why one of my affirmations for 15 years was stop trying to be God. You can't solve everybody's problems. And that weight had to be lifted. It was more weight than anything else. And once that weight was lifted, I was able to enjoy my life. It's interesting that you talk about decisions. Um, Throughout your life, you've obviously made a number of fantastic ones. I wonder who have been some of your um, idols or some of the people that you've learned from to make better decisions. Who were my idols? Who were my idols? You know, for me, it, this is going to sound crazy. Since, since I was young, I, al I was always curious to know what things people who were about to be great did wrong, if that makes any sense. Mm. So, you know, Michael Jordan's not the greatest basketball player in the world. The only reason Michael Jordan's the greatest basketball player in the world is because there was the other 50 that could have been better than him, made some bad decisions. I mean, the, you know, that's all there is to it. He, he just happens to be the one that made, that is the greatest basketball player in the world who made better decisions that hurt his career less than his peers. That's really what Michael Jordan is. I guarantee there's a lot of talented guys around the world that we don't know about who screwed up somewhere along the line. So I wanted to know those guys. So my, one of my best friends was a number one ecstasy dealer in LA. He went to prison for nine years. He was selling a hundred thousand ecstasy. He got caught. You know, another one of my friends was a number one uh, uh, pot dealer in LA. At the time, nobody was selling weed. He was number one. He ran uh, the streets selling pot and he ended up passing away. You know, another one of my friends was a, uh, a hardcore uh, party, alcohol, the whole nine. He lost everything. And we went to jail multiple times, got multiple DUIs, ruined his entire career. Till today, he can't recover from it. One of the sharpest guys we ever had. 
one of our friends was somebody that was so afraid of his father. He was just frightened of his father. Like his father had this control over him. When he would walk into the room, he would literally lock up. Like he was loose and joking around with you. When he would walk up, all of a sudden it was tense. You know, he's like, oh my gosh. I'm like, why are you so afraid of this man? Tell him what you want to do with your life. I can't do that. Why not? I just can't do that. I uh, uh, watched uh, uh, my teachers, how much they would bash rich people. I, I didn't understand at that point why. Why were you bashing rich people? My mom hated rich people. Why do you hate rich people? I mean, you know, if you hate rich people, do you want your son to be rich one day? So why, why is there such a hatred for rich people? My dad couldn't stand lazy people. Why do you hate lazy people? Why are you so upset with lazy people? He despised lazy people, my dad. I mean, till today, he's 77 years old on lockdown because of coronavirus. He's going crazy right now. That he, I, have to, I have to beg this guy every, it's his birthday today, he's 78 today. I have to beg him to stay home because the guy cannot stand lazy people, so he doesn't want to be one. So I watched everybody's philosophies in life, everybody's philosophies on how they view things. And I would ask, why do you think that? Why do you believe in that? What, what, what made you get to that point? What caused you to, what event, what book, what personal? I wanted to know your motive behind things. Like the, even if you watch my interview style, a lot of time when I get to interviewing somebody, I want to know the motive. What got you to say, that's the decision I'm making. So I was probably more the person that studied the mistakes people made more than uh, studying what things people did right. Because if you think about what people do right, we know what right things are. You know what's the right thing to do. If somebody told you right now to get in the best shape of your life without having access to a single book or social media video or personal trainer, I guarantee you, you could still get into the best shape of your life based on logic, diet, sugar. You would know without having access to that stuff. You would know how to train. You would know what not to eat late at night. Some of that stuff you already have from watching people. We have access to a lot of the right things we need to do. The challenges sometimes we don't realize how big of a mistake the consequences of a mistake. Let me give you this uh, story here that uh, hopefully this will make better sense to you what I'm trying to say. Um, there's two thoughts in life, philosophers, motivational speakers, whatever you want to call them. One of them will say, this is, this is a big chunk of them. They'll say, opportunities are like a dime a dozen. Don't worry about them. They're a dime a dozen. You're going to get them so many times. It's okay if one passes you by, you got another one coming around the corner. It's like a bus. You missed the 3.30, you got a 4 o'clock coming. You're all right. Don't worry about it. It's going to be all right. These motivational speakers say things like this. And it's fine. There's a part of it that there's truth behind. I'm not trying to tell you there's zero credibility. But I kind of like the other community. Here's what the other community says. The other community says, there's going to come a time, maybe a couple times in your life, where an opportunity is going to come that's so much bigger than you think it is. Don't screw those two opportunities up. Let me tell you what I mean by this. A contact, a relationship, a woman, a man, a job, a person to go into business with, an encounter, a connection that could lead to a lifelong mentorship, an investment that could make you a millionaire. You just have to be prepared for these things, right? Okay, so this thought requires a lot of preparation on your end without knowing if it's going to happen or not. This thought doesn't require any preparation because like, oh, it's going to be all right. Oh, it's going to be all right. Oh, it's going to be all right. Oh, shit, I'm 72. No, it's not going to be all right. What the hell do I do now, right? In 2013, 
The Miami Heat with LeBron James, no matter what part of the world you are, you know who LeBron James is. 2013, Miami Heat, LeBron James are facing off the Indiana Pacers, okay? They're facing each other. It's game one in the playoffs. Indiana Pacers could go to the championship. There's 2.2 seconds left on the shot clock. The score is 102-101. Pacers are up. They're supposed to win this game. Their center, who plays very good defense, Hibbert at that time, was crushing it in the game. The coach takes him out with 2.2 seconds left. He plays small instead of big. I'm like sitting there saying, what the hell is this guy doing? They pass the ball to LeBron by the free throw line. LeBron turns around, goes in for the left-handed layup. No time left on the shot clock. Miami wins game one. If Indiana wins that game, they could have gone to the championship. I'm listening to the commentators. Look what the commentators say, the announcers. One of them says, well, you know, now it's about how you're going to recover from a loss like this. This happens, you know, we've all gone through it, and all this kind of typical motivational type of stuff. This guy named Kenny Smith says, I don't know, guys. I disagree. What do you mean you disagree? Look, I have a lot of friends that have played in the NBA, and they've had chances to go to the championships, and some of them got very close when they were younger, and they thought they were going to go back again, and they never did. This may be their last chance ever that these guys could have gone to the championship and they just gave it away to, to Miami. And everyone's like, how could you say something like that? That's demoralizing. He says, look, I'm a two-time champion. He won two times with the Houston Rockets. And Charles Barkley sitting there, he never won a championship, okay? He says, I'm telling you, I'm a two-time champion. And I knew some of my friends that never became champions, that drains them, that pisses them off till today. But when that opportunity comes up and you're not prepared to make the right decision, it could be a lifelong loss of an opportunity that you're going to have to live with. Now, that's okay. We all have made regrets. We all have regrets. No one's free of regrets. The idea is regret minimization, a concept that Jeff Bezos talks about tremendously, that success is about regret minimization. But if you don't sit there and prepare yourself for those couple opportunities to come along, you're going to miss out. So for me, the moment that element of paranoia was started to sink in with all the mistakes people were making, I said, when the time comes for me, I'm going to take advantage of it. Simple as that. Why are you reading books? You think you're going to be a millionaire? I don't know, man. I just think I'm going to meet somebody and they're going to be impressed with the fact that I've got discipline to read books. Come on, Patrick. You're making $4,000 a month working at Bally selling gym membership. Who in your family has ever made $4,000 a month? No one's really ever made $4,000 a month. But I want big things in my life. I don't want small things. I don't care about a $4,000 a month income coming in. I want to do something big with my life. I'm going to prepare myself for the day I meet this guy. And guess what happened? I met a person who met a person. I mean, I, mean, I go to an event by LAX. It's crazy. A guy called me three weeks ago. Now I'm his mentor. But at that time, he was my mentor. So he calls me. I'm at LAX. And I see this man speak. And I'm looking sharp. I got a nice suit on. I'm 21 years old, broke, but I've filled my mind with dreams and I'm working my ass off and I'm trying to get myself out there. And I meet this man speak and I said, oh my gosh, he is so charming and charismatic. And he, he got 16 people to pay $21,000 to him in this meeting for this product he was selling. And I went up to him afterwards. I said, first of all, I will never buy your product of $21,000. I don't have interest in it. I said, I have interest in having a relationship with you. Would you mind if I can take you out to lunch sometime? I took him out. I took him out to lunch. I said, how can I help you? He says, listen, uh, my son's in prison. Nobody wants to go visit him. He almost killed somebody. He's in jail for seven years. And he's at a pretty bad prison. Would you mind going and visiting him? I said, absolutely. 
month later, I go to prison. They let me through the guards. I'm in there with all the toughest gangsters in LA. It's San Luis Obispo, uh, men's colony. Not a nice place you want to be at. It's not one of these fancy places. I spent a whole day with this guy and we talked all around a bunch of other inmates and we talked. You know, it's crazy. He calls me this week. He tells me, Patrick, you don't realize he called me because he was worried about coronavirus. He's 66 years old. He's worried. He says, I want to really, I, I trust your processing. Is this really a big deal? Should we be worried? And I gave him my counsel, what I think he ought to be doing. That's a completely different conversation. But I go to prison. I come back. He invites me to his house. He says, no one's ever visited my son. Till today, he says, Pat, you're the only person that visited my son because no one had any faith in this guy. His son's making 600 grand a year right now. So I come back. He says, how can I help you? I said, what do you mean? He says, how can I help you? He opens up his Rolodex, gives me 600 phone numbers. He says, call them and use my name. I call those guys. One lead introduced me to another person, introduced me to another person, introduced me to another person. Nine contacts later, I met a guy who made me $30 million. $30 million. Now, what if that 21-year-old kid who went, went to that event, he was just kind of like, oh, okay, let me go home and go party. I wait till the end. Everybody shook his hand and I said, I don't want to do business with you, with this company, with this product, but I want to get to know you. If you don't mind, I'm a straight shooter. And he respected that. And that led to a relationship for 21 to 41. I'm 41 right now. So when you're asking a question, I look at people who make mistakes. That's what I study. And then I prepared myself for those two big opportunities that could come up and I'm going to capitalize off of it. And that's been the story of my life. Wow, so much in there. One of the things which comes to mind is I started prepping for this interview uh, early last week. And one of the things is when I was looking through the book list on your website, you recommended at number 42, Poor Charlie's Almanac. And one of the things in uh, that book is that Munger says that you can make huge huge progress in life by just avoiding mistakes right and it seems like you've been you know as you just said but it seems like that was the philosophy in terms of, of avoiding those mistakes what's crazy is that's exactly why i put that book as a recommendation for everybody because you know how sometimes you have a philosophy you don't know if it's the right philosophy or not because you second guess yourself you're like well, I don't know. It's not worked yet maybe i'm wrong and if i'm royally <laughs> wrong i'm gonna lose out on like a decade of my life but when I read that book, and that's Warren Buffett's advisor and business partner, for him to say when his kids in that book, when you read it, he says every night his kids would come home. His kids would say, uh, Dad always talked about people who made mistakes. He would never tell us what things people did right. Dad would always say, that guy did this, then he did this, and then he ended up losing everything. And the more and more stories he heard, he calls it inversion rather than actually talking about what you can do right. Make a list of what things you could do wrong. Very powerful book. Highly recommend it. That's amazing. So you touched on, um, you know, about how you were networking there. When you look at the people that you've interviewed, honestly, as a podcast myself, I get serious, serious envy. I mean, you know, people like, um, you know, the Kobe Bryant, you know, Steve Wozniak, Jordan Peterson, um, all these amazing people. But when I was going back through your Instagram, you said that even back in 2001, you were going to Olympia events to network. So I wonder, what are some of the key um, components that you found that makes for good networking? Yeah, you know, for me, I, I caught that in when I was 11 years old at a refugee camp and I was 
crazy about this one girl named Katarina who I wanted to get with. And to get her, I had to get in the network of who she liked. So I got close to her brother and they were a community and I'm Middle Eastern and they were not turned on by Middle Easterns at that time because there was some bad stabbing events that took place. And they're like, well, this guy's from Iran. We got to be careful with this guy as well. And uh, I, I figured out a way to how to win him over by uh, uh, buying a Super Nintendo at that time when it came out. And he got close to me. And through him getting, I didn't care about the video games. I know he cared about the video games. He got close to me. And I got close to his sister. And then his sister and I started spending a bunch of time together. Like, we had a lot of fun together, even at that time, innocence. But it was, a, it was like puppy love. Puppy By the way, we're still today. We went and visited each other in Madrid three years ago. We watched, I went to watch El Clasico. He, she came and visited me there. We had a great time together. But the, uh, the point is this, from that moment, I realized it's all about getting in. How do you get in? I want to get in. So you got you to gotta create angles on how to get in. So when it was in high school, it's a different angle of getting in. When it's in the military, it's a different angle of getting in. When it was in business, it was a different angle of getting in. Everything was about getting in with the most influential, influential person. The moment you win the influential person, all the other people follow them. You got to identify the line and get straight to the line. Befriend the line. All the followers of line will say, if the lion is friends with him, I should be friends with him as well. So a lot of times people go like this. I want to go like this. And sometimes you do have to go like this because you don't have that kind of credibility. Sometimes you want to get close to the lion. You find who he respects the most and who he listens to the most for advice. You go win that person over, you, you do favors for that person. That person says, this guy's legit. Then you do business because somebody he trusts the most told him it's uh, good to do business with you. And then the ultimate part is to eventually get to a point where you have something to offer to the world that they now need you, where the tables turn. What is that? Council, network, outlet, 2.1 million subs, millions of viewership. You can get exposure, a good opportunity to go get expo exposure of an audience that maybe you don't have, a history of 20 different people who have been guests on Valuetainment, which each one of them, we sold them 30,000 copies of their books with links that we give to them. And they look at us saying, I don't, I've never had this kind of sales and books coming. Guess who starts talking then? Everybody starts talking. When you go on Valuetainment, get the book ready because they're going to sell it because these guys know how to move books. And then it's about favors for them. They'll call you and say, hey, can you do this for me? No problem. Can you do that for me? Absolutely. How can I help? How can I help? How can I help? Every quarter or so you ask these people how I can help. And then eventually, when you do, then in return, they know that to return it in a way that they can, eventually, next thing you know, favors are coming to you from all over the world, from people you never expected. And you're wondering why. It's because you've been playing a networking game right for a while, and that's all adding up. And momentum's now flipped, and it's on your turn now. It's interesting that you talk about that, um, you know, about the lion, because I remember as soon as we got Robert Green on the show, then that opened major, major doors for us. So I wonder, just in terms of um, valuetainment, you've got all these amazing, you know, guys. What has been the biggest struggle for you as a guest that you've landed? Who was the hardest guest to land and what did you have to do together? Who's the hardest guest to land? Who's the hardest? Because I heard you tell the oh. great story about Mark Cuban. Mark Cuban, yeah, but Sammy the Book Gravano is probably the hardest one to land. 
Sammy Dubo Gravano was the hardest one to land. And I'll tell you why he was the hardest to land. In his entire life, he's only done one interview, and that's with Diane Sawyer. And that was in 1994, where she grilled him. And he, he just got out of jail two years ago, two and a half years ago. And when he got out of jail, um, I reached out to him because we had interviewed a lot of mobsters, and I kind of wanted to follow up with him. He was one of the guys that's, you know, uh, uh, a very well-known mobster I wanted to interview. And uh, I got a hold of him. And he said, what makes you think I'm going to do an interview? Are you out of your mind? But he was on the phone with me for an hour and a half, and he cursed out everybody I had ever interviewed, and he was upset about this interview and that interview, and how dare you? You don't know the mob life and the world. I'm like, well, this one's going to be challenging. So then we had another call and another call and another call. Finally, he agreed to meet with me in Phoenix at his location. We went in this building. We walked all the way to the back. Mario was with me. Mario was a little bit worried, wondering what the hell is going to happen at this room. We're going all the way in the back. So we go all the way to the back, and we sit down, and he's sizing me up. I'm sizing him up, and we're talking. We had a great conversation for two hours. We did that a couple times. Finally, the person closest to him, who he trusted the most, knew who I was. He says, do you realize, like, there, there's only one person that can interview right. It's Patrick B. David. These other guys, this is the guy that's got to interview. He's a very successful uh, Silicon Valley money guy. And he finally said, if a guy close to me, because at that level, you know, you don't trust anybody. Everybody, everybody you look at, you're thinking of motive. So his trusted advisor vouched for me. Then we got on a call and we negotiated topics. And I said, I want to ask you about everything. I don't want it to be like what I can't ask you about. There's no, we can't talk about this. We can't talk. I said, then we can't do the interview. We're going back and forth. Then we finally agreed what we weren't going to talk about, which is his kids, his family. I said, no problem. I can totally respect that. But I got to bring up everything else. No problem. A one-hour interview ended up being a three-hour interview. And that three-hour interview got picked up in total with all the different platforms, 20-something million views. Um, it was not an easy one to negotiate. But the same principles applied there as it did with Mark Cuban, as it did with any of the other ones, but I would say that one was the toughest one behind closed doors. You talked about inversion earlier. What would be the inversion of great networking? So I suppose what would make for bad networking in terms of, you know, what you've seen or people that try to reach out to you it makes you've got an enormous audience. You're a fantastic interviewer yourself. What would be the inversion of good networking? Just thinking about how you benefit yourself, not them. That's terrible networking. It's terrible networking. And then, uh, uh, you know, when you're networking with people and you're talking to them, you're coming from a standpoint of, you know, uh, 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 you know, uh, if we do this, we can do this. And if we do that, you know, uh, I'll be able to get this. If I get a single feeling that you're winning and your intentions are, your motives are only for you, what is the purpose of me doing something with you if it's only you winning? No, it's got to be both ways. You know, when I, when I sit down, one of the things that sales for me became easy is the following reason. I was able to sit there and tell myself that if I were you, would I do business with PBD? And if I would ask myself, I'm Mark Cuban, why the hell would I go on a channel called Valuetainment when they only have 1,500 subscribers? Then I would start making lists of things that he may want. Forget about what I want. Of course, it's obvious what I want. So I would say, he would want this. I said, so Mark, 
how important is it for you if I can lose 5,000 of your books? He said, you really think I need 5,000 books times 65 cents? You think I need $3,000? I said, no. I said, then what is the most valuable thing right now that you need to be able to move? Because I can move anything for you. He said, I have a new app. You know the story. I have a new app. If you can move this app, then I'm in. I said, how many downloads? He says, 1,000 downloads. 1,500 downloads, some number he gave. We ended up getting 6,000 plus downloads of his app. Then he agreed to the interview because that app was a valuable download and it wasn't all in one location. It was 49 states that were downloading his app, so it was good for him to have that kind of reach. And we used his app for a year and a half. Dust, CyberDust was the app. And it worked, but you always got to think about how you can bring value to the other person while you're networking. And then it's you. And then it's you, not the other way around. Especially if you're the one pitching. If somebody comes to you, you get to dictate the terms. But if you're going to somebody, you don't get to dictate the terms. You got to make the offer and they got to negotiate back and tell you what they want. And hopefully they're happy with it. I love that. I love that. I want to touch on um, relationships because you met your wife, Jennifer, back in 2002. Um, Obviously, I don't know the specific circumstances of your relationship, but looking in from the outside, you've got a beautiful family. You seem to have built a great life together. Um, and obviously doing this as an entrepreneur is, is, you know, it's really difficult. I listened to the video she did in terms of, you know, dating what it's like to date an entrepreneur. Um, so I just wondered, you know, what have you found in terms of that marriage between building a great business and then also building a great family and combining the two? It's one of the hardest things you'll ever do. One of the hardest things you'll ever do, marriage. It's not easy. Are you married or are you single yourself? I'm single. Single, 24 years old. 24 years old. It's one of the hardest things you'll ever do. And let me explain to you why. Let me explain to you why. It, it's different for everybody. So here's what I mean. It's different. Um, every man watching this is going to relate to one of these men. Every man watching this is going to relate to one of these men. Okay? You have the one type of a man who haven't had a lot of play. They haven't been with a lot of women. And they're shy. They're not good with women. They actually are very awkward around women. And then they find one, and they're together, and she makes them feel safe, and they start dating. Six months, 12 months, 24 months, 36 months. And they're aging together. And it's now the natural thing to do to say, maybe we should get married. And then they get married. Then later on in their careers, they start winning. They start doing good. They start making money. Now girls are paying attention to them. And they're like, wait a minute, I've never experienced this before. Then there's temptation. Then there's, oh my gosh, that girl, this girl, that girl. So then that's the challenge you have. And that's if you didn't have any kind of play before you got married. That's one of the challenges you're facing. And then later on in marriage, you're like, I missed out on partying. I missed out on this. And nowadays with Instagram, with movies, with all this stuff, everything's about what you missed all out on. dating, right? Yeah. So, so I'm going to go and do some swiping right because I've never done any swiping right. How about if I go and run through 20 girls? And this is what I'm going to do. Okay. That's one challenge you'll face if you don't get certain things out of your system. The second challenge is if you get married just because the sex is very good. Okay. Because the sex being very good is different when there's no similar values and principles. You know, you can be with a girl and you can tell yourself, my gosh, 
we can seriously start a side porn business if we wanted to. I mean, the stuff that we do in the bedroom just makes no sense. You know, somebody needs to watch this stuff. I bet it's entertaining and educational. We should call it value tame and sex. You know, that's, that's what we're going to be doing. And then as it gets closer and closer and closer, you get more serious. Like, we have nothing to talk about outside for sex. Nothing. I remember one time I was dating a girl. I love this girl. Till today, I'm uh, very good friends with her. My wife is friends with this one till today. Because I was dating her before my wife, and she never thought that my wife and I were going to date each other. Anyway, so one day we're in the car, and I said, you know what I want to do? She says, what? I said, I want us to go a month without having sex. She said, I'm sorry? I said, I want us to go a month without having sex. Why? I just want to know if we're, you know, if it's, a, <laughs> I want to know what the real substance of this relationship is. She says, you're joking. I said, no. Is there another woman in your life? Absolutely not. You sure? Yes. Okay, cool. Let's go. She can't hang, He's tell, she's telling me. So three days goes by, we're going to movies. We watch the movie, we come back, we're my expedition. And it's always in the back because it was perfect. You can lay her out and you can really <laughs> do some magical things, right? And she says, uh, so what do you want to do? Lord, you know, short scroll, beautiful. I said, you got to go home. And we had nothing to talk about. One time, two times, three times, four times. And then eventually that relationship was done because it wasn't substance. If I just wanted a sexual relationship, it would have been a great relationship. She wanted to go one route and I wanted to go to a completely different route. One of the best decisions we made is us not getting married to each other. It's the best thing we did. And we loved each other. I mean, we had a great time together. They needed to be more substance. Then the, the other kind is the following. Here's the other kind. The other kind is you two get married. Everything is good. You made the right decision. You're supposed to be with each other. This is the right matchup. You got everything out of your system. You're not missing out on anything. Then you get married. Then you build a company. Then you have kids. Then you're day to day. Then it becomes a business partner rather than the love of your life and wife. That is also very critical. You can't prevent that. That happens to a lot of people, happened to Bezos, happened to The Rock. Rock's ex-wife is now his manager because they were better business partners than husband and wife. Rock's personal trainer ended up marrying Rock's ex-wife and they're all friends together. Did you hear what I just said? This is very weird what I just said. They're all friends together. He talks about it openly. They are like best friends. They trust each other. The whole thing, the empire they built is together but it became a business partnership. So it's also important to know that no matter what route you go in marriage, there's always a risk. No matter what route, I got a call from one of my friends who is going through very challenging times right now in his marriage. It's not pretty, it's very ugly. Challenging times right now in his marriage. And his marriage is a complete different story. He's a guy that's a good guy, he came up and they're supposed to be married to each other. But kids got in the way. And just, you know, taking the kids upstairs and washing and bath and putting them to bed and running the company and not having private time together. And he's not getting the right attention and all this other stuff. And psychologically, other women who don't have kids and have no responsibilities are willing to give you that attention. And it's a mess. So it is the toughest challenge you'll ever have is to get married and try to make it work because it's guaranteed you're going to experience a moment or a season in your career or your marriage that you just don't have a clue how to handle. And the best thing you can do when you go through that season and that uh, uh, 
phase of your marriage that you don't know how to handle is to make sure you don't make any major decisions for six, 12 months. Take your time. Whatever time that happens that's emotional, you want to do something stupid, just say, let me wait six more months. If I still feel like this six months later, I'll give a little bit more credibility. If I feel like this six more months later after that, then fine. But don't make any emotional decisions when you're going through that kind of stuff because sometimes you're going to look back and say, that could have been a good decision. I, that was good, but I just kind of made the decision a little too soon. You can make decisions quickly in business. You can make good decisions in business with investments. Not when it comes down to wife, husband, and kids. That's a complete different story. You got to be a little bit more methodical and patient with the decisions you're making there. So yes, that's what I would tell you about marriage. It's the most complex, challenging thing you'll ever do. You've got three young children, right? You've got two daughter, uh, two boys and, and a daughter. Um, obviously, they are going to grow up now. We're in this really digitalized world of relationships. Um, relationships seem to be more difficult than ever. They're more easy than ever, but at the same time, there's less meaning in them. Um, if we just focus on the boys, because I would, you know, I mean, if I was your daughter, I wouldn't want, I wouldn't want to be the guy to come home to Patrick Bet David as a dad. <laughs> so what would you be advising them, um, your children, in terms of navigating that world of dating and relationships when they get to that age? You know, the biggest responsibility I have for these guys is shaping their mindset. Biggest responsibility I have is shaping their mindset. If I had one thing to teach these kids is the system of processing issues, reasoning. To me, reasoning, learning how to reason is an incredible ability most people cannot do. Most people are too emotional when they reason. Most people are not reasoning uh, properly. It's all emotion, 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 emotion. So my biggest challenge with them is that, you know, when I, when I have my, um, when we go to a store and these kids want a toy, I always buy it for them. But here's what I do. The rules with me when I buy the toy, they don't get to play, it, play with it that day. I just want to see something that you really want. So I'll put it all the way at the top of the, above our TV, which is 20 feet high ceiling. You can't get to it. You can look at it every day you come home. And as you see that right there, yes. How bad do you want to play with it? That really bad. Got to finish six books. Six books. That's got six books on it. That's got four books on it. That's got, you got to make 500 basketball shots. That one, you got to do X, Y, Z. You do that. No problem. That's what you get. But dad, that's a big number. I said, you got to learn how to earn and you got to learn delayed gratification. So I'm not the one that doesn't buy the toys. I buy the toys. They just don't get it for six, nine, 12 months, sometimes longer. There was one toy they didn't get for 19 months. Can you imagine a kid not getting a toy for 19 months? They wanted it so bad. Now, some people may say that's abuse. That's bad. You don't do things like that to your kids. I'll take the risk. You do it the way you're doing it. This is the way I'll take the risk. And then the other thing I do with my kids all the time is negotiation. We always negotiate. I always tell them, you got to negotiate with me. What do you mean? So, Dad, I think it makes sense for us to go to Yard House today instead of Cheesecake. Tell me why. Why should we go to Yard House today? Well, here's why. You know how we typically go to church? It is closer to Yard House than it is. And if we can save on the gas and if we go there, then afterwards. So it's okay. Good thinking. No problem. We'll go to Yard House today. Dad, I think you should let me pick the movie today. Why should I let you pick the movie today? Here's why. Everything is negotiation from this age because for the rest of their lives, they're going to learn that they got to negotiate and everything and marriage and parenting and business and school. Everything is about the art of negotiation for the rest of your life. So earning, delayed gratification, negotiation, and how to process issues. Those are things I'm on them 24-7 until it sticks. 
And you can do everything right and they can still screw the whole thing up because they're going to be controlling their decisions they make. Just like their daddy's made some terrible decisions in his lifetime, they're going to do it as well. And we're going to go through it together in a patient manner. But uh, it's, it's purely those uh, a handful of mindsets that I'm going on back and forth, back and forth, back and forth to the point that they can, before they go to sleep, I'll ask them a question. Daddy, what are the four things we do as a family? Daddy, we lead, we respect, we improve, we love. Do we bully? No. Do we get bullied? No. What are the four things we pray for? Courage, wisdom, tolerance, understanding. Awesome. Who loves you? You, daddy. Good night. I mean, that's like, that's the process over and over and over again, because I believe in affirmations and I believe in reaffirming these things until one day they say they're 25 years old, making fun of me saying, what was it like with him being your dad? Let me tell you how annoying it was every day, you know, and I'm going to be so glad that this was annoying because they remember it. That's the critical aspect of it. So that's the approach I'm taking. I may be wrong, but it'll take us 50 years to find out. I love that. I love that. I just want to wrap up this segment on relationships just with one last question on this. And that was, how did you know that you had found the right woman for you? Or how did I know? Um, I don't think I'm like that. I, I think for me, there's always the risk. You know, when, when my wife and I got married, you know, prior to us getting married, I, uh, I, I, I had a lot of girlfriends. And when I was with girlfriends, I kind of didn't know what I was looking for. I thought I knew what I was looking for. I didn't know what I was looking for. I read a book called 101 Questions to Ask Before You Get Engaged. And at the time, I was talking to four girls. And one of them was Mrs. California, which we were inseparable. And then the other two were girls. One of them was my boss and one of them was another girl and, uh, and then my wife. And I bought this book and I gave it to everybody and we went through it. And out of the 101 questions, about 50 questions really matter. I have the book till today, it's in my safe, by the way, just so you know, I have the book till today, it's in my safe, all the questions. And some of them are dark. <laughs> some of them are not like, uh, you know, stuff that you really want to talk about. Anyways. So I sat down with my wife. I knew I always liked her because I met her in June of 02 and I was in a relationship that I was getting married to the other girl and she was in another relationship for eight years. And then finally we were both single for the first time and we started dating. So I always liked her. She always liked me. We trusted each other. We respected each other. And uh, one Saturday we go out and we sit down and went through the questions for six hours. I said, look, at this point of the game, I think we both like each other. I just don't know for long term this could work on. I kind of know what I want. I want you to look at the questions and answer them and see if we can make something work here. We went through the questions. Six hours later, I sat there and I said, if there's anyone that has the highest likelihood of being able to be married to me, she's the one. There's no way in the world anything else is possible outside of this one. And that's what we did. We went from there. Then a year and a half later, we got married. But in that moment, I told myself, I think this could work. Now, keep this in mind. To me, nothing is 100%. Let me say this again. Nothing is 100%. With decisions, nothing is 100%. Everything's got a bit of an out. I, one of the best quotes one of my pastors once told me is, remember this, women marry men thinking they can change them, but they stay the same. Men marry women hoping they stay the same, but they change. <laughs> So we have no clue what the future looks like. But so far, we've been married for 11 years and we're happy. But it's so far. But we take it one year at a time because marriage is very complex. So that's the best answer I can give you in that area. 
I love that. I love that. I thought that we went through that perfectly. Um, appreciate we running out of time, so I just got a couple of quick questions which I just want to run through. Um, so when I was going through uh, research in this, there was one particular quote which really stuck out to me. Most of the greatest world changers and heroes of all time are at the graveyard, undiscovered because they never sold out to their dreams and desires. What can we learn from the graveyard? When I was studying for my uh, securities license to be a stockbroker, I would study my license next to my grandmother's uh, tombstone in uh, Forest Lawn. So I, I was at the graveyard all the time at Forest Lawn. And uh, I would walk around and I would always ask myself, do I know that last name? No, nope. do I know that last name? No, nope. do I know that last name? No, nope. how about this one? No, how about this one? How about this one? This person lived 37 years. You think they maxed out their 37 years? 72 years. You think they maxed out 88 years? You think they gave everything? 93 years. I was always at cemetery because cemetery to me was a, a place that I know I'm going to end up at. I'm going to be there no matter what. There's no way you can leave that part. You're going to end up being there. Even the richest man in the world that's trying to come out with all the vaccines in the world to live for the rest of his life, he's going to eventually die. You're going to die, right? So that created a level of urgency for me to know that if you don't get moving, one day someone's going to walk past your tombstone and they're going to say, who the hell is Patrick David? Okay, cool. He lived 93 years. He lived 72 years. Who is this guy? Then they just walk past you. Now I'm not going to live with that. I'm going to do my part to make sure that day comes that someone's going to say, this guy impacted the world. I'm going to do my best with the life and the gifts that were given to me. I'm going to do my part. I can't control all of it, but I'm going to do my part. So the reason why I put that quote there, I don't know if that's out of the book, 25 Laws for Doing the Impossible. The reason why I put that out there is because I think most of the time people forget how fickle life is and people forget how capable they are. Their parents, their exes, their friends, the media, the news, the educational system convinces them that they're average and ordinary and they buy it. The biggest problem isn't that those people are trying to convince you. The biggest problem is that people buy it. It's like going to the store and buying a product you never wear. You were sold. You were sold something you're never going to use. A lot of people are sold mindsets that they should have never bought. I refuse to buy a lot of the mindset people try to impose on me. And my recommendation is for people to do the same as well. Because this thing called life is fickle. And we got a shot to do something special with our lives. And I think we ought to. Based on what we've talked about today, could you issue myself my co-hosts and our audience a challenge that you see going on in the world or something that we could start doing today? I think a challenge for everybody would be the following is I'm at Harvard business school for an OPM program. I didn't get my MBA from their full disclosure. It's an OPM program. You pay $50,000 and you live there for three weeks with a 120 other CEOs that are doing a minimum of $10 million or more per year from 50 different countries. So that's what I did. I went to OPM program and I'm there. And the last time, the last uh, uh, day or week that we had, everybody had to come up and pitch the opportunity or business that they're working on. Just an idea. I was one of the ones that presented my idea. And then the next person went up and the next person went up and the next person went up. Almost everybody picked a social issue to address. One of the guys was African, from Africa, very successful businessman. 
they were able to build a plant that produced 50 million gallons of water per year out of air. Let me say this one more time. 50 million gallons of water. $100 million brings you 50 million gallons of water. And I sat down and I'm like, watch and say, this is pretty insane to me. So we don't have to worry about water drop being the issue because an entrepreneur and scientist coming together in a room, they're going to figure it out. Next guy gets up, he says, statistics about earthquakes. This is how many people have died in the last decade from earthquakes. This is how much the travesties cost. This is how many lives. This is how many this. How much would it be worth to a city or a state or a country if we could predict an earthquake and give you a two-minute warning? I said, come on. We could give you a two-minute warning. How much is that worth to a city? And I'm like sitting there skeptical. How are you going to do this? And they start showing. Da, 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 because this is, this is, this is. This is the technology we're putting together that we can predict an earthquake and give warning two minutes before it happens, kind of like a hurricane. Wow, that's pretty sick. Can you imagine that? Now people wouldn't be dying. You'd go out in the middle, you'd be safe. I love that. Educational system. How are you gonna improve this? Everybody started giving their own things. My biggest challenge for you would be, pick a social issue that's going on in the world that people are concerned about and find a way to tie that to your business that you're doing and see what kind of an impact you could make, okay? But that social issue has to be emotional to you. It cannot be logical. There's gotta be a story behind it, some kind of emotional connection to your own personal life, your wife, your husband, your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, a friend, somebody you lost yourself, a kid, because if it has that kind of a meaning, you'll take it more seriously. So that'd be my, my biggest challenge to you and your audience. Where can our audience connect with you and do you have any closing thoughts or any future projects which you'd like to share? Yeah, so the one book I've been working on for the last five years with Simon & Schuster called Your Next Five Moves is coming out June 30th. And this whole Your Next Five Moves, to me, everything in life is about knowing your next moves and what you're going to be doing. Too many times people don't know their right moves and they don't know how to sequence it properly, meaning move number 22. Many times people want to do on move number three, which you're not doing it the right with sequencing. So finally, after all these questions people ask, I just said, let me write a book about it. And my entire philosophy of how I come up my next five, 50, five to 15 moves, it's in that book. So that book is coming out June 30th. If you put the link below, people can pre-order the book to be one of the first to get it. And then outside of that, you can go on YouTube and just type in the word entrepreneur. You'll find me all over the place. And on Instagram or Twitter, I generally respond back on Twitter. So if you send me a tweet, at Patrick Bay David, I will respond back. But you'll find me all over YouTube. And everything will be linked below. Patrick, I've learned so much from this. Thank you so, so much for coming on the show, man. It's been a real pleasure. I got to give you credit, man. You're good at asking questions, and I respect the fact that you do research because most interviews are very lazy, and you're definitely not. Oh, man, I appreciate that so much.